I'm M. Soder, better known as Pints and Panels. And I am Don Tess, better known as the Dawn of Beer. Welcome to the 24th episode of the All About Beer podcast. Every two weeks, we talk with leading experts and take a deep dive into one topic in beer. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer. And if you're feeling generous, why don't you throw us a few bucks at our Patreon site, patreon.com forward slash allaboutbeer to support this show and others. Uh, this week's episode, we're going to be talking with two giants of spontaneous fermentation and how old world thinking versus new world ideas shape a unique subset in brewing. Don, are you a spontaneous gentleman? <laughs> I do not like spontaneity. I like things to spec and predictable. That is not accurate at all. Uh, well, I like spontaneity, and I especially love when it's used in beer, <laughs> uh, especially with these two guests we have lined up today. This is this is exciting. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, as you know, I'm super nerdy, and I'm really looking Wait, forward what? to, uh, <laughs> to hearing all now. about like Wickerhammer Mices and Bretonomyces and Pediococcus and all that. All all the, all oh, it's yeah. going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to it. So we'll introduce our guests and get into a conversation. But first, first, here is a word from our sponsor. And if you would like to help support the All About Beer podcast, reach out to podcast at allaboutbeer.com. Estrella Galicia is an independent family-owned brewery in Northwest Spain, founded in 1906. Estrella Galicia Cerveza Especial is a world-class lager, brewed using the finest Spanish malts, locally cultivated Galician hops, and the best brewing practices made out of the state-of-the-art facility in Acruña. Recognized around the world for quality and exceptional character, Estrella Galicia is a beer like no other. To learn more about Estrella Galicia, follow them at Estrella Galicia USA on Instagram. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. Werner von Boberen is one of the owners of Brewery Dre Fontanen. In 2013, Armand de Belder and Miko Blockhart called upon Werner to help shape the future of Dre Fontanen. With his experience in strategy and with masters in finance and business economics, he is now responsible with Mikkel for managing Trifontanen and its team of 20. Mikkel takes care of the creative and operational side while Werner manages the business side. Mikkel and Werner continue the lifelong craftsmanship of Armand and, inspired by his values and wishes, took Trifontanen a step further with Longo Barrel Aging, a local cereal and hop collective with farmers, a network of families with sour cherries, and a direct relation with some of the most progressive biodynamic winemakers are just a few examples. Welcome to the show, Werner. Thank you very much for having me. First of all, I want to ask, how do I, I've been pronouncing Dre Fontaine, or however, wrong for my <laughs> entire life. Um, please pronounce it for us so I don't ever do that again. <laughs> Well, actually, you were very close. It's Drie Fontaine. Um, mm. So, Drie Fontaine. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, a bit more the Drie Fontaine, a bit more pronounced uh, in, in a kind of a Flemish or yeah. really Dutch way. So, mm. that's, that's fine. Okay, okay. good. Well, I'm going to still pronounce it wrong probably in the future, but I will correct people who... <laughs> uh, even though you say yeah, it wrong. Even though I'm going to say, I'm going to like, you know... Um, 
So we're um, very happy that you're here because we're excited to talk about Lambic and uh, Goose and Fruit Lambic production with you. What's the brewing process like at the brewery on like, let's say a weekday? What's your day to day? How are things or is it different every day or since you're not brewing until the winter for or what's yeah, what's the day to day process like over there? So yes, it's like you say, M. Um, uh, we only brew winter months. Um, so uh, generally speaking, from the beginning of November to more or less mid-April, um, and everything depends on the uh, uh, night temperatures. Um, also, this year, for example, our last season shifted a bit. We only uh, started uh, mid-November, and uh, we ended somewhere beginning of May. Um, so we're we're actually. Um, uh, driven by uh, night temperatures um, oh. and whereas the brewing itself is a very technical process it's like with every uh, brewing installation um, in terms of brewing lambic there's quite some particular differences with other uh, styles of beer um, among others, the, uh, uh, the difference between uh, the, uh, the cereals that are used. So we use a lot of raw wheat, for example. We also use uh, aged hops where the alpha acids have been uh, dropping over uh, the years of aging. Or we use fresh hops, but very local ones, very old varieties, like, for example, the Quagno who uh, by nature already have a very low alpha acid. We also boil for a very long time. We boil up to five hours. Cool. Um, and then yeah, the biggest difference is that we actually pour uh, the boiling wort onto cool ships. So we don't uh, uh, cool down the wort, but we leave it to cool down overnight. Um, and that is where the biggest difference in a, in a let's say, modern brewing uh, process uh, is uh, with, uh, with traditional lambic. Um, but then, yeah, still every day is also different. Um, so we have different wind directions, you have different night temperatures, you have different air pressures. So, and those uh, elements all have an influence on uh, the end result uh, being, for example, the sugar density of the warts, uh, the number of liters that are left. Uh, and on top of that, and that is particular to Drifontana. We use a wide variety of different types of wheat and different types of, uh, of barley um, because we work with uh, a lot of local farmers. So that's, uh, again, a very different uh, impact on our brewing process. Um, for example, uh, only by changing from one type of raw wheat to another, the whole filtering dynamics is, is, is uh, impacted. Sometimes <laughs> the filtering time is doubled because we just switch to another type of, uh, of uh, raw wheat. Oh, wow. Huh. Um, so the, wow, that, yeah. Don, all right, Don, go. Yeah, there's sure, a yeah. million questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I know that you're using um, low alpha hops when they're fresh or aged hops. And, and because you don't want the bitterness and the isomerized alpha acids, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, wh why raw wheat versus um, malted wheat or flaked wheat or torrefied wheat? Um, yeah, that's part of the tradition uh, because uh, so with raw wheat, you have uh, this, this particular dynamic in, the, in not only the brewing process, but also the fermentation of lambic and the aging of lambic, where you have a much slower, um, how to say, consumption 
of certain uh, material that comes with the raw weeds. And that's where also the, uh, uh, the, the, the Britannomyces kick in, oh. uh, which, which is a very strong yeast, not in terms of, of, of uh, short-term yield in terms of alcohol, but, all, but very much so in the very long-term fermentation and, and, and uh, consumption of, uh, uh, yeah. I'll just yeah. have components of uh, coming from the uh, the brew itself. It's diastatic. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, my last question before, <laughs> because I know I interrupted uh, M's flow here, but um, you you mentioned that uh, you know the nighttime temperature, air pressure, winds will affect the resulting lambic. When you put that barrel that that um, brew into barrels, do you actually label each barrel saying you know this was uh, cooled on this night and this was the night temperature and the wind was from the southwest etc cetera, et cetera. um well that at a certain point in time that was part of the ambition to keep track of all the variables uh we even had the uh um uh, a smart uh a weather station but then yeah it ran on batteries sometimes the batteries <laughs> uh were empty uh sometimes we just we didn't exchange them and then yeah so the focus was really on the brewing so we do we do keep track of all the brews uh, the number of liters that came off the cool ship uh the sugar density we keep track of what wort went to what barrel because we have a very low uh or we have a very small cool ship we only have 3000 liters more or less uh of net yield on average uh per uh, brew day and night um, and we have barrels that go up to 7,000 liters. So sometimes uh, we need to have multiple brews on one barrel, or we also have small barrels because we don't standardize in, in, in any part of the process. We also have small barrels from 400 liters, 500, 6,000 to thousands. So then we need to split a certain brew over different barrels, but we do keep track of the brew uh, days. Uh, what brews went on what barrels, then also later on in a blend of goods or uh, for fruit lambic, what types of, uh, or what warts and what lambic that we have been using. So we keep track of that, but we don't link it to specific uh, uh, weather uh, variables. Okay. Um, but what we do know is that, for example, so, and that's something that we, we do keep track of, um, if you go from boiling warts to uh, net cool ship uh, uh, number of liters in the morning, it can be a difference uh, in between 17 and 27% of loss. And that 10% range that will be, uh, yeah, let's say, linked to the weather conditions at night. Right, right. Awesome. Love it. So actually speaking of barrels, like where, where are the barrels coming from and why are they important? Are you, you're reusing them a lot? Are you getting fresh ones? Are the fresh ones different varieties? Um, how does that barrel aging process work? So for the, uh, let's say the, the common barrels that are used for uh, fermenting and aging lambic, those are what we call neutral barrels. So um, most of the times those barrels have already been used uh, in wineries. In our case, it's uh, the, the, the most of those barrels come from the Barolo region. And they have been going around for, let's say, between five to 10 years with uh, Barolo uh, wine houses. Um, the reason why we use um, uh, used wine barrels is for uh, the simple reason that um, the fresh uh, oak tannins have been extracted uh, by the wines. 
Um, also, just to be clear, all of those barrels have been neutralized. That means that we are not looking for the impact of the wine, but we are looking for the contact with the wood. So that also means that every barrel is open again and all of the winestone crystals that have been formed during the fermentation and the aging of the wines are removed. Um, and if it must, even a part of the, uh, the, the, the staves uh, is shaped um, in case that the wine has entered too much into the wood. Um, so that's, that's your typical uh, barrel that is used for uh, lambic fermentation, fermentation and aging. Um, Next to that, we also have some more, let's say, specific barrels, uh, among others, sherry barrels, where we're going to look for the characteristics of the sherry that have been uh, or that has been lying on those barrels. In that case, we have those barrels emptied. We transport them over to our barrel house and we immediately fill them with one, two and even three year old lambic to age uh, further on those barrels to finish actually the, the lambic uh, with the, in the sherry cask. Uh, that's the second type of barrel. So, and of those, we uh, meanwhile, we have uh, uh, port barrels, we have uh, Armagnac barrels, cognac barrels, whiskey barrels, but those are very small uh, quantities. Hmm. Are, are those for specific you know, whiskey barrel aged lambics or are those part of the blending process? Uh, those are for, for very specific blends that we make to really in order to look for the balance between the whiskey and uh, the lambic. Oh, um, oh, I've never had a whiskey barrel no, aged. No, neither have I. I and I like, love whiskey. So. <laughs> yes, yes, you do, Don. <laughs> oh, when is, uh, when is the whiskey barrel aged lambic being released? <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> For the moment, it's being uh, uh, um, uh, aged or it's aging on the on the whiskey barrels. Um, so and those have been, I think they have been filled with lambic about a year ago. So normally, okay. let's say in the second half of 2023, we will taste and uh, look what we're going to do with it. Maybe we will blend it a bit more with with lambic to to. Uh, to make it uh, a goose, or we will bottle it as such. That really depends on what what is coming off the barrel um, and what what we actually like, or what we think that would even support uh, the lambic uh, even more. Lambic production is very much a blending art, isn't it? Well, that's that's what I'm always explained. It's uh, the, the the brewing is very technical. Um, that is something that you can learn, but the blending it's it's something that you have that that really is passed on generation to generation because it's not something that you can learn from a book. Um, of course, there's a very um, let's say technical part to it, uh, meaning that you have to have residual sugars from the young lambic to have a continued fermentation in the bottle. Uh, but how to balance the acidity with uh, the softness of certain lambics uh, with the age of all lambics to come to something that is really your signature as a brewery, as a blender, that is something you have to learn from, uh, yeah, let's say, your master. Um, and that has always been, um, especially with Armand, he has been teaching it to Michael. Michael is now teaching it to, uh, to three other people in the team. And yeah, it's it's a taste that you pass on, actually. Um, and that's uh, it's like you say, Don. It's that's 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 the real art. Yeah, this is what I love. This and this is why I love lambic too. It's the art of it. 
It's a little art and like a little magic because of the spontaneous uh, yeah. fermentation, I think, you know, like that's there's something about it that like, you know, we can in America recreate. We can try to create what you all do in the Sin River Valley, but it's incredibly unique, magical process that you possess. That's fascinating to me. Um, I, I uh, share your uh, sentiment <laughs> in that sense that uh, when I, 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 I when I started drinking beer, I really fell in love or I immediately fell in love with Lambic and never got to taste any other type of beer before I started drinking Goose. Oh. Um, and it was also Armand like, explaining to me how it was made, what the, the actual values were um, and still are. Um, um, and sometimes we are also surprised. Um, I still remember about, yeah, it was five years ago, um, beginning of the summer and all of our goose blends after having bottle conditioned for six to eight months, they were still uh, flat. And uh, Armand told us, don't panic while well, I was panicking because I'm responsible for paying all of our <laughs> team members uh, so that they have their salary uh, neatly uh, uh, transferred to their bank, ac bank account uh, at the end of the month and to pay all the suppliers. So I was a bit panicking and I'm always like, just give them, give those bottles their summer and you will see that the corks will be flying off and effectively uh, let's say mid-August, we we opened them again, and and all of the balls were popping. So in that sense, it's still it's still magical for us as well, um, especially uh, because we don't we don't intervene in in the fermentation. Uh, the only thing we measure while blending are is this the number or the degrees Play-Doh, so the the residual sugar that is left. Uh, all the rest we don't measure the uh, yeast activity. That's something we don't do. We really start with. Um, what are the different characteristics of the different lambics? Uh, how are we going to balance them? And for every blend of goose, we start over again. We cannot make a blend of goose twice. So yeah, it's it's a big part still uh, magical. On the other side, uh, and that's also true um, throughout the course of of years that I already worked with Trifontana. The idea of real spontaneous fermentation has been growing with a lot of brewers and we often get bottles uh, offered by those brewers to, to, to taste and, and just as, as a gift as well. Um, and I, I do think that generally speaking, the quality of, of spontaneously, spontaneously fermented beers is, is really uh, increasing. Um, and I, I'm talking outside of the Lambic uh, world. Um, and I've been drinking some uh, uh, very nice, spontaneously fermented American uh, beers as well. Um, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's good to hear that the quality of American outside spontaneous beers around the world are increasing in quality. Uh, that's, that's very pleasing to me as an American. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, you know, do you, do you think there is such a thing as terroir in beer? If there is, I would argue that it's most evidenced in lambic. And what is the what is the limit of that? Like uh, a lambic made within the city limits of Brussels, for example, um, versus where um, the Rifontaine is. Is that your? How much of that is the way you make the lambic versus terroir of you know the cereals surrounding? 
uh, the brewery and the and the nighttime air and wind direction and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, well, first of all, um, uh, let's say that that um, even two hundred years ago, uh, what is today Payotland and the Valley of the Sun, it actually was a cereal, the fruit and the vegetable barn of Brussels. Um, so uh, lambic, like like winemaking today. Uh, first of all, a winemaker is a farmer. Um, when we look at 150 years ago, there were more than uh, 90 breweries and almost 300 Gerze blenders in this region. And uh, a lot of the times they were linked to local farmers or even more so. And I think Lindemans is a great example. You still see the old farm um, a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, the brewery was actually in the farm and um, during winter, they actually brewed what was coming off uh, in the summer from the fields. Mm. Uh, and mostly uh, also uh, the malting happened on the attic with the heat of the brewery. So it was a, a very close uh, uh, cycle. Um, and that is something that has been lost over the years. And then I'm really referring to the farming part. Um, the farming, the malting, the brewing have become like global, uh, let's say, different silos, almost literally. Um, and the whole system has become very uh, um, um, uh, anonymous. Uh, the one is not talking to the next one anymore or uh, uh, the other way around. Um, so in terms of, of, of real terroir, I think, yeah, that's, that's the issue that we have is that uh, when uh, brewers are talking about their terroir, they even don't know where their cereals are coming from. Um, when we started with our own cereal network in uh, in 2017, the very first question that we asked to our uh, to our maltster was, "Where do the grains come from?" And they said, "Like uh, from everywhere and and nowhere. It can come from Germany. It can come from Ukraine. It can come even from the U.S. There's a lot of import in Belgium from the U.S. of raw grains that are malted here." Um, so it's it's um, we have lost the link with the uh, with the with the farmers and with our own soil, in fact. And in beer, I think, uh, like with wine, I think that's the biggest impact that you could make um, is to give a certain character, a certain uh, flavor to your beer. Of course, like you say, like with lambic, there's also the whole climate uh, that is uh, that is impacting and. There, we do know that, um, that, that, for example, the difference between our brew house, which is 100 meters above sea level, it's actually the highest uh, lambic brewery in the region, uh, compared to the barrel house that is at 20 meters above sea level, we already have, like in winter times, a two degree centigrade difference of temperature. So we know oh. that if we would move the, the, the brewery, there would be a whole different dynamic. So that's also a, a, a element of terroir. Um, and then it comes to the use of hops, of course. Um, and I know there are some discussions about, yeah, you boil everything out, so there's no difference. But then I can say, yeah, you can still play with intensities. Um, two weeks ago, we were at the Carnival uh, um, de Michels in Amsterdam, where we held a, a lecture about uh, uh, our cereal network and we poured two lambics, 100% made with, uh, with local uh, cereals. Uh, so there's this, 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 um, I know there's this whole discussion about, yeah, everything gets boiled down. 
But two weeks ago, we were at uh, um, Carnivale Bretanomyces, where Lucas, he's managing the whole cereal network and, and the different farmers. Um, he poured two different lambics, 100% made with local cereals, but different uh, barley and different wheat. And the color was different, the characteristic was different. So, and that actually means that throughout the whole process, there is quite some difference when you start with different ingredients. Um, and and I do think that even, um, I, I don't think it's a discussion about is beer terroir related or not. I think it's a choice of the brewer uh, to what extent he wants to go and have terroir expressed in his beer. Ah. Mm. What about the fruit edition? I just got goosebumps. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Don got yeah. Don gets really yeah. That's uh. That's this is Don's bread and butter. I'm trying to ask you about fruit here, Don. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, you guys have a cherry orchard, correct? Or how yes. do you, how does some of yep. the fruit? Yeah, where where is that cherry orchard in relation to the brewery? Uh, so the brewery is at five minutes from the barrel house, and the cherry orchard is uh, next to the to the barrel house. Oh, yeah. oh wow. So where okay. so the cherries come from there, and then where does because I will say. Uh, uh, one of the best lambics I've ever had was at Tree Fontaine, and I had a strawberry and raspberry mm -hmm. blend, um, and it was the best strawberry like expression I've ever like experienced in lambic. And I was wondering, like, where do the fruits important part of the terroir and the brewing process as well, and where do those come from? Okay, so yeah, um, so the uh, orchards or orchards um, are scabics of sour cherries. Um, so, and that orchard is, is quite young. We still have to wait for another five years before we will have a, let's say a full yield. Um, but we do work with more than a hundred families from the region that have uh, scabics of sour cherries, uh, cherry trees in their uh, uh, garden. And so they bring them in and we actually pay them. Um, so, but that's a whole network that we are also uh, uh, managing and that is still growing. So we also giving away um, uh, uh, root shoots, uh, ungrafted root shoots for them to plant in their garden. And we have their uh, references so we can, uh, we can communicate every uh, beginning of the summer. So like now, for example, uh, the, uh, um, the harvest will start. So uh, at the end of the day, there will be a lot of people coming in uh, just uh, with their uh, sour cherries. Um, for the other fruits, like for example, the strawberries that you mentioned with the raspberries, we work as local as possible. Um, all organic. So um, with those typical fruits, I think we're at about around uh, 30 miles around the, uh, the barrel house. Um, for other fruit types, we because we do use uh, uh, grapes as well, we actually link with, um, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, natural wine makers and bio-organic uh, uh, wine makers. Um, throughout the different regions within Europe where typical grape varieties are leading. For example, uh, Beaujolais for Gamay grapes, uh, in Alsace uh, for Gewürztraminer grapes, uh, Pinot Noir in certain regions of Germany. Um, but uh, all of those farmers, all of those winemakers are uh, have become uh, friends meanwhile. Um, and that, that makes it a, a very interesting, um, um, how to say, balance. Because we do, we do share the same values. We like a lot what they're doing because most of the times 
it starts by just uh, uh, tasting what they're doing, whether it's, it's, it's strawberries or raspberries or the wines itself. Um, but we try to link one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, directly with them. Um, and that also depends on seasons. Uh, for example, last year was a very bad uh, Scarabix cherry season. So we got more plums, in, plums instead because it was a very good year for plums. And that is how you can start balancing the different fruits. Um, so yeah, we 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 uh, how to say we we draw the line somewhere and we continue on that line. Um, and yeah, the next part of the ambition is that we are per blend that we make, uh, we also expose all of the uh, origins of the uh, the ingredients. Oh, I look forward to that. Yeah, um, me too. When you add fruit, does it also add new microbes from the fruits that maybe spark an extra fermentation of any kind? Uh, you will have a, a, a new fermentation, uh, but the question is, are it the yeasts that see a, uh, that see a new source of sugars uh, from the fruit or right. is it new microbes that we don't know and we have not had that research uh, Okay, It just happens. Um, it's magic. <laughs> more magic. At least part of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, the fruit comes in um, and, and we, we put it on Lambic. Um, yeah. Awesome. Don, what other questions do you have? I know you've, I know you've got a lot, so. Um, I wanted to give uh, Werner an opportunity to describe, um, you know, you've, you've given this whole process and I'm absolutely fascinated by it. Um, you mentioned that uh, um, Three Fontaine has a, a signature flavor. Uh, I wanted to ask if you could describe that. And, um, you know, I think that uh, you have one of the better reputations in, in Lambic. And I know that there's a lot of uh, magic involved in the way uh, Lambic is made. So how do you, I mean, you, you talked about the technical aspects of the brewing, but other than that, how, if it's all, if there's so much magic, how do you make your Lambic special, unique and consistent? You know, I know, I know it varies, but there's still some sort of consistent thread throughout all your Lambic. How do you do that? How do you control all that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, first of all, um, it's, and again, that's the part of the arts. Um, you have certain characteristics uh, that are, uh, uh, um, prone to the Fontana, which are the, if, if you have a fresh goose, sort of say, <laughs> I, I don't like the word fresh because fresh in Lambic, it's, it's already, let's say, a weighted average of more than three years, while uh, a, fr <laughs> a fresh IPA is like two days old. So when <laughs> people refer to a fresh Drie Fontana, it will be more on, uh, let's say, the, the uh, higher uh, side of acidity, um, uh, um, uh, citrus, but also a bit uh, of grassy uh, aroma. Um, whereas it ages after, and the sweet spot for us is like five years where you get more to the stone fruit aromas. Um, that is something that, that, is, uh, that is proper to be from Um Secondly, uh, in terms of consistency, and certainly consistency in aging, it's, it's actually quite simple. You cannot trump nature. Um, if you let the uh, Brethanomyces do its job in terms of aging, then you get really, really far. 
and it's 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 not difficult you have the same with uh, a well-made um, uh, wine you have the same with a with a well-made cider uh, if you don't start to intervene and add your own yeast and everything you will get a beer that ages gracefully um, a second factor in that is that we only use or we only bottle our lambic beers we don't use key kegs um, it's uh, it's currently a big challenge because we see more and more lambic being, yeah, let's say, uh, uh, pushed into bars through key kegs. Um, it's uh, it's a big discussion between the lambic brewers as well. Um, uh, historically, it's already a few years that there's uh, quite some discussion about that, but we don't we don't give up the uh, um, the bottle. Um, because it's it's a way to have something or unique as a lambic to to not only age gracefully, um, but also to have like a it's a very rough word a container that keeps, for example, pressure. If you want to start right. heat kegging uh, a a lambic, you need to uh, cut off uh, the potential uh, pressure buildup and. Uh, the, the, the way to do it, yeah, there's different ways to do it. Uh, filtering is one of them, uh, or uh, uh, mingling in other uh, lower ABV or lower um, uh, plateau beer as well, uh, which is not often uh, lambic, but it can call to be called lambic because there's also a huge gap in uh, in legislation in Belgium. So, um, uh, but yeah, again, it's it's values that we want to to continue, and. Um, there's, there's already in, in the 1940s, there was a big discussion on what the most noblest type of, of lambic was. And that was the number one was all bottled uh, goose, all bottled um, uh, fruit lambic. And that's one of these values that Armand has uh, uh, held very highly um, and that we, we only continue uh, in honor of Armand and also for the technical part of it you can a bubble can uh, sustain up to uh, more than nine bars of pressure whereas for example a key keg it's only three bars and a bit mm. so yeah mm. there's some technical uh, technical sides to that discussion as well you um, you mentioned yeah you mentioned Armand I wanted to touch on him briefly who was the at the helm of uh, Trifontaine for years um, I know he obviously he passed away a few years ago you just mentioned him about doing bottles. How else does his legacy live on at the brewery? Um, yeah, first of all, um, so we uh, we first met uh, about ten years ago. Um, so he was uh, he was managing Brauerie Fontana uh, himself um, with let's say two three uh, people that helped from left and, and right. Um, and yeah, he, he um, so at that point, Trifontaine was already spread over four different locations. And the very first thing that he wanted to do is, is centralize everything. Uh, back then, Michel uh, already uh, worked at Trifontaine. Um, and uh, we sat around the table drafting a plan like, okay, how can we bring everything together? while continuing brewing at the location that Armand brewed at because it was a, a very, uh, and it still is a very good uh, brew house for Lambic. Um, so we started a plan and as from the beginning, and that's something that, that Armand, it's also one of the values that Armand held high um, and that he learned from uh, 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 
uh, Hermann Terling, uh, that he always referred to as his third grandfather. He always said, like, look, guys, I can give you my opinion, but it's up to you to do something with it or not. That's completely up to you to decide. Um, but throughout the whole, let's say, uh, continuation and evolution of the Riefontaine, we never had a discussion about the beer itself. Um, and, and one of the, the, the clearest examples, um, that was the summer of 2017, where we actually sat together discussing about not only fruit, because we, with the fruit, we already went to directly with farmers. We made a choice to go for only organic, while the beer at that point was not organically certified yet. Um, um, and the Dermont said like, I would like to go back to our own back garden for everything that is cereals. And that's how it actually started. Um, and that is where yeah, he could um, uh, fall back to a team of different people to make it happen. Because at that point, he was already, let's say, settling down a bit. Um, he was uh, doing the tours. Uh, he was receiving the people. But the day-to-day uh, -day operations that he left to, to the rest of the team. Um, but yeah, in that summer, um, we were reflecting on how can we... Uh, get Trifontaine even further than where we are today. That's what he said. We have to go back to our own back garden. Um, and that's how the whole project started. And uh, soon after we met with Lucas, who is still working at Trifontaine. He was uh, a student back then. He was uh, looking for a, a dissertation on um, what we call uh, agroecology, which is really the link between or linking different farmers in a strong network with uh, uh, customers, uh, with fair price setting, uh, with uh, risk sharing and so on and so forth. And we were actually the only uh, brewery um, that was interested. And that's how we sat together and we started to, to discuss with farmers. And yeah, that was five years ago. And now we're actually fully uh, uh, already for three years. Uh, the, the complete mash bill uh, consists of uh, local cereals. Um, and the next step is to find other parties to set up a micro maltry in the region. Um, because the, the nearest uh, malt tree is, uh, is uh, in the middle of uh, the Netherlands and, uh, and uh, in Germany. And that's already also too far. Um, we can, for the moment, we do malt our, um, our barley a, uh, outside Belgium. Uh, but we would like to have a micro malt tree installed with one of the farmers. So that's a project that we're working on now. And that's how we actually evolved to what was once the uh, the standard. The same with the hops. I told you about the uh, the heirloom hops. Uh, the Coigno is one example. Uh, other example is the Chulunabel. So we are there's now one farmer that has uh, different rows of those old uh, varieties of hops. Um, and yeah, the summer will be the third time that we will have a small yield of those hops that we can use. So, yeah, cool. yeah. Awesome. so yeah, so cool. That's really, really lovely how you're going back to the land. I love, the, I love that. The future is the history. That's what I love. Like mm. Going back Absolutely. to roots. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. A lot of people tell us you're so progressive, and my answer is always, we're just going back to what was once the standard. We have lost yeah. a lot of uh, valuable uh, ways of working with with suppliers and with uh, uh, with local uh, local people. 
so cool. Yeah. So I have one last question for you, Werner. Um, do you have a favorite Drie Fontaine and blend that like blew your socks off? That was the best. That's what's the best beer uh, in your mind or one of the best years maybe um, that you guys have produced? Um, I, I can. Yeah, I, I really like that question because for me, um, and, and it's it's the easiest answer, but it's I will also explain why. Um, the beer I like the most of Drie Fontaine, it's Lambic. But at the same time, there's so a vast variety of Lambics, whether it's a young Lambic, one-year-old, four-year, five-year-old Lambic, they're so different. Um, that and, and it's it's also the basis of everything that we do. But sometimes you get like almost pure apple juice, sometimes you get like more uh wine-alike uh, uh notes. Um and that is so um that that's for me that is for me the real magic. Um, and I will give you a, a little anecdote. Um, the first time I, or one of the first week I was working with Dave Fontana, uh, Michael um, comes up to me. Um, I was doing some, some invoicing. He comes up to me with three glasses and he puts those glasses in front of my nose. He says like, okay, uh, you go and you tell what you, uh, what you taste and what you think of it. And those three glasses in terms of aroma, in terms of taste were so distinct that I told him like, look, I think this one is a young one. Uh, this one is a two-year-old Lambic and this one is a three-year-old Lambic. And this is where the magic comes. Um, he says like, nope, you couldn't be more wrong. It's actually the same Lambic. So brew the same brew um, from the same spot, three different barrels, barrels at the same origins. Uh, and they have been lying next to each other. He says, yeah. like, this, is, this is Lambic. You can you never know what is going to come off. You know what is going to go in, but you never know what is going to come off. And that for me is the real, that's still up to today. I'm sometimes so flabbergasted by what is, is coming off a barrel, straight Lambic, um, and the difference between different Lambics is so big that it's, um, yeah. And you cannot... You, cannot put your finger on it and you cannot tweak it or you cannot say what if we do this would it turn into that no you you give yourself or you give your beer to nature and then you have to do something with it so it's magic and art together that's, that's awesome that's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> like i am i'm getting emotional <laughs> uh well ver yeah go ahead now no i was just gonna say this uh this entire uh recording i i've been smiling like i, yeah, I just me too. I, I so enjoyed this Werner. thank you thank you yes. very much um for people who want to reach out to either you or the brewery how do they do so social media or a website yes we have social media uh we're very responsive uh on the website we also have a contact page uh or just uh uh, email address which is info i n f o uh, at three fontana with the letter uh with the uh number three three fontana dot b e um okay. and i will be answering <laughs> wonderful well thank you so much for all your time today we really appreciate this has been a really fascinating look inside the brewery and uh yeah we really appreciate this thank you so much thank you guys for uh for having us Thank you. Really appreciate yeah. it.
Cheers. Cheers. Estrella Galicia is an independent family-owned brewery in Northwest Spain, founded in 1906. Estrella Galicia Cerveza Especial is a world-class lager, brewed using the finest Spanish malts, locally cultivated Galician hops, and the best brewing practices made out of the state-of-the-art facility in Acruña. Recognized around the world for quality and exceptional character, Estrella Galicia is a beer like no other. To learn more about Estrella Galicia, follow them at Estrella Galicia USA on Instagram. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. Jeffrey Stuffings grew up on the Gulf Coast of Florida. He studied government at Notre Dame and law at Boston College. While in law school, he discovered homebrewing and craft beer. He and his wife, Amber, moved to Texas in 2007. Slowly thereafter, Jeff began working on starting Jester King with Amber and his brother, Michael. Today, Jeffrey focuses on beer making and Jester King's operations. He and Amber live in Dripping Springs, Texas area, and have two children, Laura and George. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thanks, Em. Appreciate you having me on. So spontaneous beer is incredibly hard to do and unpredictable. So what made you decide to take this challenge on down in Texas? Yeah, um, good question. Um, you know, my first uh, experience, which is fermentation in general, was was getting into to home brewing. Uh, you know, wort was the first thing I ever you know, attempted to, to ferment. And, you know, just like a lot of folks, uh, you know, homebrewers or folks who, you know, started there, just learned about, you know, monoculture mono fermentation. And, um, you know, that was the only context that I knew. But then, you know, as my brewing, you know, experience and knowledge progressed, you know, I started to get into, um, you know, the world of mixed culture fermentation. And, you know, this is over the course of, of, of years. Uh, but then, you know, finally started to kind of go down that rabbit hole of, of spontaneous, um, you know, like a lot of U.S. brewers, you know, I was introduced to uh, the spontaneous uh, tradition uh, from, uh, you know, well, the, the, the Lambic uh, uh, brewers and beers. Um, of course, you know, there's as I continue to learn about spontaneous, there's other you know cultures and traditions uh, on different continents uh, that have done his have done and continue to do spontaneous, but uh, but again, it was the Franco-Belgian you know lambic uh, tradition that I that I kind of learned about it. Um, you know, the first uh, beer I ever had, like like I think like, like a lot of folks who try lambic, uh, you know, was from you know Brasserie Cantillon in Brussels, and um, you know that beer can be pretty pretty mind blowing. Um, you know, Rosé de Gambrinus was actually the first spontaneously fermented beer I think I ever tried and um, was just kind of floored by it and wanted to learn more. Um, I made a trip to visit Cantillon for the first time in 2012. 
um, and, you know, got to see the barrels and just kind of breathe in the, you know, the cobwebs and the, the mustiness of the room and uh, just came away highly, highly inspired to see if uh, spontaneous fermentation would be possible in Texas. Uh, this time, Jester King uh, was about uh, two years old. Um, and then, you know, I knew it could be done in the United States um, because um, Allagash had already around that time-ish, I believe, had released some of their first spontaneously fermented beers um, with the the cool ship uh, Resurgum, you know, their version of a uh, of uh, Belgian goose. Um, so, you know, obviously, there's a pretty different climate from Maine to Texas. So we were skeptical, and you know, really weren't sure if spontaneous would be possible in Texas, but. Um, we thought it was worth a, a try. And so really, you know, number one to kind of you know, summarize the love of spontaneous beer that I developed uh, over the last you know decade or so, and then just the desire to see if it would be possible in a, you know, totally different uh, climate like, uh, like Texas. Is there anything you do differently because you are so far south and like you know maine and texas are like you said completely different climates is there anything or, you have or to brussels. do or brussels <laughs> or maine well i was th yeah. thinking allagash in my head yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and now i want allagash for circum because that beer is just top notch um oh, yeah. i mean those are two totally different places like i've been to texas and i've been to jester king in february and it was 72 degrees out uh, it right. is not 72 degrees in brussels in february so is there anything you do to kind of change how you brew or are you just hoping that it'll be cold one night like what what accommodations do you make yeah a um, couple things um number one our our window our cool ship season is is pretty small um typically like december to february and even like you were saying we'll have those february days where it's you know 75 degrees out so you get these little like maybe four to seven day cold snaps, at least, you know, cold snaps for, for us where the temperatures get down into the thirties and forties at night, um, which in our experience is cool enough to take a um, 30 barrel batch of words. Uh, that's the size of our brew house. And then uh, chill it in a, in our cool ship overnight from, you know, boiling temperature to about, you know, 75 Fahrenheit by the next morning. Uh, and then by the time we, you know, rack to, to barrels for spontaneous temperature tends to drop by another, you know, 10 degrees or so. So by the time, you know, fermentation is starting to kick off, we're at a pretty good, pretty good range, kind of that, that cellar, cellar temp. Um, so we're able to achieve that, you know, again, for just a small window of time, you know, speaking of Allagash, you know, I've heard them say that, you know, they actually have kind of the opposite problem where in the heart of the winter, it's actually so cold, you know, it can, they run the risk of freezing their, their wort into a, a block mm. of ice in the cool ship. Mm. Um, so I think they, from uh, what, what I remember them telling me is like, they're uh, kind of more like fall and spring where um, again, we're just like part of the winter. Um, and then the other thing we tried, and this is kind of one of those, like, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention type of things. We had a um, a collaboration planned with uh, Fontaflora Brewing in uh, in North Carolina. Uh, it, the collaboration was in Texas. We wanted to do a spontaneous beer, and you know how it is with you know people visiting and travel. You can't really plan around the weather. You know, tickets are bought, trips are planned, 
And when they came down to do a spontaneous beer with us, it was it was pretty hot. I think it was like at least 70s, if not even up into the 80s. And, you know, we we adjusted by um, actually just kind of pivoting to our old, you know, homebrew background and put, uh, you know, wort chillers, uh, just immersion chillers into the cool ship overnight to kind of aid in the cooling. Mm. And that seemed to work uh, pretty well. You know, we were a little nervous that, you know, the balance of microbes in the air might be not the right mix just because of the higher temperatures, but it ended up producing a beautiful beer that uh, we called uh, Wander Flora. Um, and so that actually, that, you know, collaboration with Flora, uh propelled us to actually build a, you know, kind of cool ship size immersion chiller that we've used to extend our cool ship season um, you know, not real long. I, I'm not crazy to really push our luck well into the well past kind of the early spring, but but nowadays we will do spontaneous batches all the way into to April uh, with the use of a, uh, an immersion chiller. So those, I would say those are, and then, then of course, finally, our, our barrel room is climate controlled. Um, you know, you go to Brasserie Cantillon and, you know, it's just ambient temperature in their cellar uh, where we have, you know, very thick insulated walls, um, you know, solar panels on top of the barrel room to like blunt the heat energy and then, uh, you know, uh, AC cooling to, to keep it at cellar temp uh, artificially. Without that, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced it would not work. Um, based on this latest experiment that you did, experiments is, uh, is maybe not the right word because you kind of were doing it on the fly, but is it the micro, is it that there are different microbes in the air? at different temperatures or is it that different microbes survive in the wort at different temperatures? You know, in, in my kind of, uh, you know, practical, not entirely scientific, uh, you know, background and experience, um, I believe that it's the balance of microbes in the air. Um, primarily, um, you know, for instance, I and this is partially scientific, just based on what I've, I've read is that, uh, you know, certain bacteria, are kind of more active during, you know, hotter temperatures, warmer parts of the year, which kind of throw off the balance of, of fermentation. Mm. Um, and then also, you know, that there is that practical consideration of getting the wort, wort cool. And, you know, just if we, you know, cranked up the wort chiller as high as we could go and, and you know, tried to do spontaneous fermentation and say like right now in you know, July, um, we've never, never, we've never tried it, but my intuition tells me it's just that the fermentation would be pretty nasty in terms of just the flavors that would be produced. Um, just there's that kind of like cool balance that kind of favors like yeast over bacteria. Uh, even with, again, even with the benefit of, you know, climate control and wort chillers, like I just, well, I, I can't be sure because I've never tried it, but yeah. like it just like feels based on all of our fermentation, both mixed culture and spontaneous experience of Jester King, that it would go poorly most of the time. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you want to try it either. <laughs> no, no. I mean, just like every gosh, I mean, every kind of wild project we've ever tried at higher temperatures just runs such a high risk of, of just running into fermentation flaws and issues and off flavors. Sorry, Em, I interrupted there. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Was, Don was... is Don. You're the resident nerd. Like <laughs> I've said right. before, Don is the nerdy stuff. So 
Um, I actually wanted to ask about uh, your barreling since you already talked about fermentation um, and where you source your barrels and uh, why is this important? Is it from Texas Hill wineries? Is it from Belgium? Is it from other wineries or breweries? Like where, where does the oak come from? Or are you not using oak? Are you using something else? Oh, no. Great question. Um, um, we are using oak. Um, so we started off our barrel program with um, 225 liter, you know, smaller format um, barrels that we got from local wineries. And, you know, they maybe had two, three, four fillings of, of wine, um, nothing real long term. And uh, I would say like for the first at least two, maybe three years of doing wild and spontaneous fermentation, the character was just like dominated by, by oak. Um, you know, we, our very first batches of spontaneous were way too oaky. Um, and it kind of masked the fermentation nuance, um, you know, being inspired by Lambic, you know, these, these aren't sure they're wood aged beers, but they're not like real just driven by intense oak character, um, and really that kind of, you know, fermentation and aged hop uh, flavor and aroma, I, I, I think dominate in a, in a great way. Um, so we, like our first ever beer that we did spontaneous, we were confident that it would work because it didn't have any off flavors. And that was definitely like a, a moment for celebration where I remember, you know, uh, giving our head brewer at the time, Garrett Crowell, just a big hug and kind of jumping up and down because we're like, oh my God, this, this worked uh here in, in texas um but that beer even though it worked we knew it was something that wouldn't get released uh on its own because it was just way too oaky mm. so we started to acquire you know larger barrels uh you know punch and barrels that are about you know 400 to 600 liters um we got those from uh french uh wineries um rocky mountain barrel supply in, in colorado uh, helped pr procure those for us um, and, uh, even though those were, you know, less, uh, you know, uh, surface area to, to beer contact, um, they still were fairly oaky, not as bad. Um, but then after, you know, doing our spontaneous program for, you know, four or five, six years, you know, we're now up to, uh, 13 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. This winter was our 13th cool ship season. Um, so about like halfway through the maturity of our program, oak character did start to lessen just after you know multiple fills over multiple years um but still like when i do side by sides with our spontaneous beer and, and belgian lambic that is one of the things that jump, jumps out is even to this day um the lambic i think is has less oak character given just you know i, I mean contio for instance has barrels that i, I believe you go back um, you know, to the like 70s and 60s, uh, just some really, really old stock. Um, so yeah, um, uh, we uh, have, how have we progressed? We've gotten larger barrels and they've gotten more neutral as time has gone on. And for our purposes, just the more neutral, the better. Unless we're like specifically doing like a spirit bar barrel aged beer, I want just the most like neutral oak I can find because I really want the fermentation to be the star of the show. Does it matter that they're European oak? Because I, I thought I read somewhere that American oak is tighter, and maybe European oak being less tight has more area for the microbes to take uh, take hold in. 
Yeah, we, we do prefer um, European oak, although we have worked with, uh, you know, American oak barrels and they've been fine. Um, a little bit more oak character, which I, again, I, I, I don't like and find distracting for this style of beer. Um, but uh, as far as just like microbial uh, adoption in the wood and, and just uh, fermentation, uh, have not had any issues like getting, you know, maturation with the American oak, but, okay. but to your point, I do prefer the European. Um, oh gosh, I'm, I've got many uh, questions. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask about terroir and do you think that your spontaneous beers have a certain Austin terroir? And if so, what, what does that entail? So if I have your spontaneous beer versus let's say Allagash's or another American-made spontaneous beer, what makes Chester King's Spawn beers kind of stand out? Yeah, another good question. Um, you know, for the longest time, I, I would have said fermentation character, and I and I still do. Um, but I feel that, you know, being on the outskirts of Austin, Texas, uh, on the doorstep of what's known as the Texas Hill Country, um, we are on a, uh, a well, uh, it's called the Trinity Aquifer. Um, it's a big limestone rock formation. Our well is around 800 feet deep. And of course, when it rains, the water has to percolate, you know, through just sheets and sheets of, of limestone rock. And our water is, is very hard. It's around, you know, 750 million or parts per million, uh, just total dissolved solids. And, uh, for our farmhouse and spontaneous beers, um, because we are trying to achieve that that terroir, we we don't uh, filter or soften our, our water. It's just the uh, raw well water. And I think when I taste our spontaneous beers, as well as the farmhouse sales we do, um, you really, the thing after just years and years and years, I finally have settled on the thing that jumps out to me most is the character of the of the well water. Um, so I would say number, as far as terroir, I would say that perhaps is number one. Um, number two would be the fermentation character there. Uh, and I, I'm really happy this is just for whatever reason, but we we get a very nice like stone fruit character in our spontaneous beers. Um, I, I assign that to fermentation. I don't think it's coming from the malt or the hops or the water. Um, I think it is a fermentation byproduct. I can't tell scientifically why that is. Um, I don't think it's the barrels like wood tannins can sometimes present fruity, but uh, we really don't get that with the uh, farmhouse ales that we send to the more or less the you know, same same barrels. Uh, it's just the spontaneous. So, um, yeah, I would say we kind of get this neat kind of fermentation character. I mean, I, I think, you know, microbial terroir is a very real thing. I think, you know, the wine industry dominates or demonstrates that all the time with just um, sure, different soil, different climate, but I think the balance of microbe, microbes in the vineyard is, is very uh, instructive or, or as well. Um, where I would say probably less terroir is, exists is I, I do have a trouble kind of distinguishing kind of like malt character from spontaneous to spontaneous. Like I can get like different mineralities and certainly different fermentation characteristics, but less so on the, the grain side. Um, and then you know, I get um, aged hop character 
Um, that I have a hard time kind of distinguishing. I, I mean, it's I, I love age top character. It's very easy to pick out, generally speaking. But as far as kind of assigning any type of like, well, this is kind of like, you know, age top character from, you know, hops that were aged in Texas versus, you know, Europe. Uh, I struggle with that as well. So to me, like it's really about kind of the water and fermentation that that makes these beers unique to place. Um, can I ask, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the fermentation character being the unique terroir. Have you had any analysis done? Like, are there actually microbes that you can name and identify that are unique to Austin or, or is it, you just embrace the magic? Uh, just, just, just embrace the magic. We okay. uh, <laughs> never had our spontaneous beer, um, analyzed scientifically. We, we have had some of our uh, mixed culture farmhouse beer analyzed and um, uh, UC Davis did like a partials kind of spectrum on it. And it was, yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, but that was so long ago. I can't even remember all the different uh, microbes. So, so, so no, um, we've never really taken that step to try to, you know, understand, you know, scientifically what, what the drivers are. Okay, good. Hmm. What's it? I accept of- that. Yeah. <laughs> Don, Don's like, I gotta know. Cause he's <laughs> I kind of want to know. And then I kind of like, I kind of no, like embrace the magic. The magic. Too, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's a typical spawn day? Like, like are you starting in the afternoon for the evening? What's uh, what are we talking about when we're talking H hops, the malt profile, walk us through, you know, boiling, you know, get it, get some, get technical with us for a second uh, and talk about what's a typical spontaneous day look like over at Chester King. Yeah, um, it's a long brew day. Uh, we start the night before uh, just picking out the, the aged hops that we want to use. Um, we started, you know, taking just one, you know, step back. Um, you know, I uh, didn't really appreciate at first just like how both important to kind of the the quality and of the fermentation and preservation of the beer that aged hops are, as well as the ultimate flavor profile. Um, you know, I attributed when I first drinking, started drinking Lambic, I, I attributed practically everything to the, to the spontaneous fermentation itself. But then, you know, with time, I finally kind of put it together that, you know, a lot of these, uh, these, you know, Lambic beers are not dominated, but like heavily you know, contributed to by, uh, aged hop flavor and aroma. So, um, it was almost, you know, we, we kind of to truly, I think make, good spontaneous beer um yes we our first batch was 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 fine but um and yes it worked in texas and we knew that but you know before it started really becoming good i in my opinion besides you know the wood character being tamed our hop program aged hop program had to reach maturity um which didn't take too long it took about you know two two years i would say and that was involved just taking you know bales of uh, whole leaf hops. Uh, we started with pellets, like our friends at Live Up Brewing in Austin gave us some pellets that were like from 2005 or something like that. They were very old. Uh, they said they did not keep them refrigerated or frozen. So like room temperature, old hop pellets, um, surprisingly to me, still retained like a lot of bitterness. And um, a couple of our early batches were uh, just just too bitter. Um, because we're using uh, pellet hops. Uh, so we switched pretty quickly to using whole leaf hops. Um, so we just get, you know, bales in, 
break them up. Uh, we basically just would get hops on the spot market that no one really wanted anymore because we weren't after them for like nice, fresh flavor and aroma. Like for instance, we'd get like bales of like uh, English, you know, promise or, or challenger with, you know, low alpha acids, you know, around like three or so uh, break them up, um, put them into burlap bags. And then we put those bags into the attic of a, an old barn that's next to the brewery that's been around since the 1930s. And we'd let those hops just you know, sit at ambient temperature in the attic of the barn, even, you know, through the Texas summer, you know, where it's over hundred degrees in, in the barn. And um, after about two years of that, the hops really lost all of their bitterness, still retained a nice um, kind of nice kind of uh, um, kind of like for lack of a better term, kind of like rustic, uh, character and then of course retain their their preservative qualities that don't go away with the you know the heat abuse that they go through prior to to use. Um, so anyway, that sorry for the tangent. Uh, we 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 select the hops we want to use, which um, you know I'm kind of chuckling to myself because uh, um, it's I wouldn't say it's like as critical as like you know making like an IPA, but there's <laughs> but it really is like a science to and an art to uh, selecting the right hops for spontaneous. Cause you can really throw off the balance of the beer. If you don't pick hops that are really, you know, mature. Um, you know, I, I kind of point to one general flaw I've, I've had, you know, with, with spontaneous beer that I've, I, from other breweries, a lot of times, like it's just, um, either the hop character is too fresh or too bitter. And assuming you're trying to, you know, go for that kind of like old world lambic and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. But like you're trying to brew to like that kind of like lambic style, if you will, then, um, yeah, hop, properly aged hops is, is, is essential. So anyway, uh, we've selected our hops, um, pretty high amount of hops as well. It's like a pound per barrel, mm. you know, also kind of, uh, not unlike, you know, IPAs in that sense. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think that's a, a, a somewhat of something that, uh, is, is a, a misperception about spontaneous is that it's, um, not a hoppy beer. Um, actually it, it, it is, uh, because of the preservative quality, like, you know, I, I have not had our own beer analyzed, but I remember looking at, I forget what website it was, someone had posted um, an analysis they did of Cantillon Goose, and I recall the IBUs being around 30, 35, oh. and that's pretty much what we see with our spontaneous two, kind of, you know, that that same range. Um, in fact, it was, uh, you know, Jean from Cantillon who recommended we use about, uh, you know, a pound, of course it was a metric and we had to convert it, but, you know, he recommended we use about a, a pound per, per barrel. Um, so anyway, hop selection is, is uh, a big part of it. And we come in the next morning, um, uh, the grist we put together, uh, again, inspired by Lambic, we do uh, 60% uh, malted barley. Um, our malted barley comes from the Texas panhandle. We work with a maltster called a uh, Tex malt. Um, and then, uh, raw wheat also, uh, from, from Texas, but not, uh, malted. And then, um, we do a, a, a turbid mash, um, which, um, uh, basically just, it's not unlike, you know, for instance, doing like a, like a triple decoction or something, just lots of temperatures, lots of rests, lots of transfers, um, so it's a pretty long mash, um, you know, two to three hour of, hours of mashing. Uh, and then when you do the extended boil, um, typically about three to four hours. Uh, so at this point, you know, you're about seven, eight hours into the brew day um, and you're, you know, just beginning to, to knock out 
Um, we try to time our knockouts to our cool ship about the same time the sun's going down and starting to get pretty chilly. Um, and then, um, yeah, it takes about 45 minutes to fill the cool ship. Um, to this day, it's a pretty, well, at least, you know, uh, you know, dramatic, if you will. I mean, it really is kind of, um, uh, you know, there's lots of like, uh, you know, hisses and pops as the copper or cool ship as a copper skin, it kind of like just gets used to the heat and it, you know, kind of like shimmies and shakes and it, it's, and then, um, and then there's just something kind of just like meditative about, you know, just watching the work just flow into the vessel. Um, you know, especially when it's quiet and it just kind of sounds like this little babbling brook going. And then you see these like little cool, like little formations of foam start. They look almost like, like these little like spiral Milky Way galaxies, just kind of like slowly spinning in the cool ship as the wort fills and the foam kind of just spins and, um, you know, it's one of the things in brewing that just has not gotten old after, you know, 15 years. Um, you know, it's just very kind of like, it's kind of like almost like church-like, uh, when the cool ship's being filled. Um, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and then we just, um, uh, leave the windows open. Um, we even leave our, the bay door of our brewery, uh, of our barrel room where the, uh, cool ship's located open just to get as much cold air into the room as possible. Um, and then just go home and, uh, come back the next morning. Hmm. Um, very, yeah, very involved. Yeah. I, I never would have thought of hop selection as, as, uh, you know, so important. Uh, uh, so I think that's amazing. Is there, can hops get too old? Not in my experience. Um, you know, they, they go through that kind of like initial kind of like funky, cheesy phase, but then they get, uh, you know, people refer to H tops all the time as, you know, being like stinky and, and I'm not saying they're wrong, but, um, you know, by the time we age them out, they're not all of just kind of any kind of like moisture content. is just gone. They're just like brittle and they can kind of like, if you just like rub them in your hand, you know, you don't get any of that or very little, I should say, kind of like that, you know, normal like hop kind of oils in your hand, the oils, the mm -hmm. moisture, all gone. It's almost just like, you know, really dry, brittle, almost like potpourri. Um, and we've had some bags of hops that I'm, I think we just never used and they're still in our, uh, our attic of our barn. And yeah, I think they're around a decade old now. And oh wow! <laughs> yeah, they still they still seem like they'd be great for spontaneous. And and what is the point of the super long boil? Like, are you just trying to evaporate some of the liquid away, or are you do you want Maillard reactions? Or yeah, I mean, so I mean, we that's it's one of those things that we just did kind of just out of tradition. And you know, I wish my you know kind of brewing history was. Um, you know, a little uh, better to kind of truly know like why the, the Belgians long ago started going for the extended boil. Um, I mean, for but on a practical basis, like I like the little bit of like coloration you get and a little bit more of that kind of concentrated wort character, by no means like, like heavy or, or cloying. I mean, these beers finish at, you know, around zero Plato and are extremely dry and drinkable. Um, but you know, if you, for instance, you know, do a side by side with just our you know, everyday farmhouse beer, um, and the, uh, spontaneous we do that has, you know, the, the extended boil, 
you do get kind of that 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 orange character um and then um yeah i mean we um we brew a fairly low strength words at least when we're knocking out because you know unlike uh you know by the time we you know, instead of unlike brewing for an hour after four hours like we we're concentrating it down by about like mm, uh sorry to jump from like plato to specific gravity but like uh, about like uh 12 specific gravity points okay um a few years a few years ago you did some experimentation with glass color uh, and then decided that green glass bottles were the best for your beer. Can you explain a bit about, uh, I guess, why you did that experiment and and the outcome and, and what people should be looking for in your green glass beers? Yes. Um, so, you know, to this day, we, um, uh, we, we fill beer intentionally so in, in different color bottles um, still the vast majority of what we're looking for or what we use is, um, is, you know, brown, uh, glass and, you know, that does a pretty great job of not really giving any kind of like light struck character. Um, we've experimented with clear bottles and while that was fun to play around with, we've pretty much retired clear bottles because, um, I found that like just the light struck kind of like skunky hop, you know, almost like, you know, just take a glass of IPA and intentionally put it in the sun for like just direct, like beaming sunlight, you know, this time of year in the summer for like five minutes. And like, you'll get that kind of like skunk top light struck character. Um, yeah. And I feel like clear bottles kind of lead to that, uh, which I don't love. But, you know, green glass, uh, I think, is kind of a happy medium. Um, you know, I forget the specs, but I think green glass is rated to, like, keep out something like, I think, like, brown glass, I'm just going off of memory here, it's, like, some, like, 85% effective. And then, like, green glass, I think, is somewhere, you know, lower than that. But still, you know, relatively effective at, at keeping uh, light out, um, you know, provided, you know, proper carrier beer. I'm not talking like, just like, leave it, you know, in the uh, sun. <laughs> yeah. But like on a store shelf, at least, you know? Um, and so, um, yeah, um, I think that, um, you know, again, one of those necessity things like you, you know, when I toured, you know, certain, even to this day toward certain Belgian breweries, they're still using green glass just cause that's what's like, you know, most available to them or, or most economical. And so, um, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I don't think, you know, Lambic brewers over the generations uh, were uh, saying, oh, well, you know, we need to use this certain type of glass to achieve this certain type of character. I think it was just, you know, what, what the industry at the time essentially gave them to use. Um, but because, you know, green glass lets a little bit more light uh, through than, than brown, you do get a little bit of that kind of like Euro skunk slash like light struck character in the beer, um, which I don't want like to dominate. I think it can be distracting if it's like too intense, but just, uh, you know, green glass with like otherwise, you know, proper care of the beer adds just a little bit of a layer and a little bit of that like sense memory that kind of brings you back to like drinking beers in, in, in Europe or, you know, drinking or having your Europe beers, your European beers sent to you. 
um, that's that's kind of fun and and kind of I I would say you know really almost kind of part of the style. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. I have one more question for you. Uh, in all the years that you've done the Spawn program, was there one year that stood out from the rest as like the best Spawn year? You know, uh, the the answer the short answer is uh, no. Um, every year we have just uh, and, and just for context, we do it's a small program. We do about fifteen brews a year. I mean, again, we have a small window of time to work with, um, so. You know, we do you know thirty barrel batches times fifteen, so we're only doing about one hundred and fifty uh, barrels of, of beer a, a year, and within that, those fifteen or so batches, um, there is some you know truly awful beer. There's some kind of so-so beer, and then there's some really beautiful beer. Um, kind of every year has its you know shining stars and you know batches that just aren't very good, um, but never have never have we had kind of a year where it was just like everything was stellar or or thankfully never have we had a year where everything was just really bad hmm. it's been a pretty big mix every year and i i i can't tell you why <laughs> magic that's the, that's the magic <laughs> yeah uh well this has been a really fascinating discussion we're very thankful for you uh to come on and talk about um their spawn program with us if people want to uh, reach out to you or the brewery, how should they do so? Social media, website, what's uh, what's the best way for people to contact you and the brewery? Oh, yeah. Um, social media, for sure. Just, um, just uh, yeah, uh, uh, at Jester King Brewery on Instagram and Jester King Brewery. Yeah, we're, we're, on, we're on those. And um, yeah, I mean, if anyone wants to email me directly, I'm, I'm always happy to answer, um, especially, you know, especially technical questions or uh, creative questions about, about beer. Um, yeah. My, my emails, uh, J stuffings, uh, J S T U F F I N G S at uh, jesterkingbrewery.com. Nice. Wonderful. Uh, thank thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. And uh, yeah. Cheers. Thank you so much. Cheers. cheers. Thank you. Em. Thanks Don. Don, what'd you think about that? I mean, your mind is racing a mile a minute. <laughs> it I, is. Yeah. Uh, I love, I was so looking forward to this episode because you know how nerdy I am. And oh, I'm going to learn all of these things and I'm going to understand the magic. But um, such is the nature of spontaneous fermentation that, I mean, I there's more questions that came up than, uh, than got answered. And that's wonderful. Like, I love that. I love that. We'll have to do a uh, part two. Yes. Anytime. We could do a whole, like a whole podcast, but. Just on spontaneous. Oh, I bet because there's so much. I mean, you heard uh, both our guys. I mean, the amount of you know months and then uh, variation from barrel to barrel, brew to brew, day to day, uh, year to year. I mean, it's so wild to think. Wild, get it? (laughs) eh, 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 That was not intended. Um, that was just me being cool. Um, spontaneous even. It was what. It's just really great how I'm, yeah. I I I love spontaneous beer and it's delicious. It's I'm just actually really excited to see how the quality of American spontaneous beer, North American spontaneous beer, has gotten so much better, um, or and how many breweries are doing it and doing it well as well. So that's exciting. 
Yeah. And it, and it will only get better because it is such a new, you know, as, as Jeffrey was kind of saying, they kind of didn't know what they were doing. They kind of had mm-hmm. to do some experimentation and they started with, you know, new, uh, relatively new oak that they needed to work through and all that. So yeah, it's only going to get better. Yeah, H tops and then figuring out, Oh, we're in this climate. Let's use a word. Like, it's just, it's so cool. Like how things keep going. It's awesome. Yeah. 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 So yeah. visit the all about beer pod podcast. Blah. All right. Hold on. Let's try that that again. (laughs) Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer. And if you are feeling generous, and we hope you are, visit our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash allaboutbeer to support this show and others. If you have any questions for the experts, email podcast at allaboutbeer.com. That's also the email for feedback, suggestions, or to inquire about supporting the show through advertising. Speaking of advertising, here is a short word from our sponsors. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Estrella Galicia is an independent family-owned brewery in Northwest Spain, founded in 1906. Estrella Galicia Cerveza Especial is a world-class lager, brewed using the finest Spanish malts, locally cultivated Galician hops, and the best brewing practices made out of the state-of-the-art facility in Acruña. Recognized around the world for quality and exceptional character, Estrella Galicia is a beer like no other. To learn more about Estrella Galicia, follow them at Estrella Galicia USA on Instagram. AM, do you think our listeners are tired of us uh, requesting that they subscribe and give us a five-star review? Probably. But <laughs> we're still going to ask, aren't of we? Of course. <laughs> please well, what, give, us a, yeah, why did, please wait, give us a five-star review. Oh, why? Yeah, well, why? Because it helps the algorithms and then other people uh, can, can, can find the show. And the more people that we have listening, the more we can spread the gospel of good beer. Ah, that's good. So please go on your wherever wherever your fine podcasts are sold, uh, be it Apple, Spotify, anywhere else. Uh, please give us a five star review. It really, really helps. Don, and it's how, free, and it's so, free. And how can people? Yes, and how can people find you on social media, Don? Uh, I am at the Dawn of Beer on Twitter and Instagram and Threads, uh, and uh, people can email me. I am Don at thedawnofbeer.com how about you em and i am at social media uh, ebb at social media that is not my <laughs> uh my handle because that would be everyone's handle uh i am at pints and panels across all social media and my website is www.pintsandpanels.com this show is produced by all about beer visit allaboutbeer.com for articles notes on this show and others and to connect via the newsletter and social media cheers everyone cheers Keep drinking wild.